Well, hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's my pleasure to be your host here on the podcast, and we have a good edition of Radio Free Acton lined up for you today. We will be talking with Dr. Kevin Schmiesing, research fellow here at the Acton Institute and editor of a new volume just released from Acton called One and Indivisible, a series of essays uh, and papers uh, talking about the relationship between religious and economic freedom. We've been talking a lot about this issue at the Acton Institute over the last year, a couple of years actually. Uh, even had a series of conferences dealing with the issue and uh, the result of a lot of that uh, research, study, and uh, conversation is right here in this uh, book that I'm holding in my hand right now, One and Indivisible, The Relationship Between Religious and Economic Freedom. We'll get to that interview with Dr. Kevin Schmiesing in just a few moments. First of all, I want to uh, give you a uh, heads up, uh, mark your calendars. Uh, as usual, every year we hold an anniversary dinner uh, celebrating the, uh, the anniversary of the founding of the Acton Institute. This year it will be our 26th annual dinner taking place on October 27th of this year, 2016, at the JW Marriott Hotel here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it's going to be a, a wonderful night, as usual. Uh, the annual dinner is always a great event, and we have a fine keynote speaker this year as well, Reverend Paul Scalia, priest of the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia. And uh, you may remember, he uh, is the son of the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who passed away earlier this year. Uh, Reverend Scalia gave a wonderful homily at his father's funeral, and we're really honored to have him join us this year as our keynote speaker at our annual dinner. We'll also have remarks from our president here at the Acton Institute, Reverend Robert A. Sirico. And uh, as a special special addition to the program, we'll be presenting uh, posthumously our Faith and Freedom Award to Justice Antonin Scalia. So it's going to be a, a great evening, uh, a good time uh, joining with, uh, with fellow supporters of the Acton Institute, and we hope that you'll be able to join us as well uh, on October 27th. That's a Thursday evening here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Head over to acton.org events to find more information and to register uh, right there on our website. I am pleased to be joined on the phone today by Dr. Kevin Schmiesing. Kevin is a a research fellow here at the Acton Institute. He's the editor of our Christian Social Thought series, uh, author of books, articles, book reviews galore, uh, also a teacher of church history in the lay pastoral ministry program of the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, an accomplished scholar. uh, Dr. Schmiesing, welcome to Radio Free Acton. It's always great to have you. Thank you, Mark. Good to talk with you. Well, we're talking today about a new book uh, just released by the Acton Institute. It's called One and Indivisible, The Relationship Between Religious and Economic Freedom. You're the editor of the volume. You provided an introduction for it as well. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about this book? Where does this come from? Uh, It's the result of a series of conferences, is it not? Yeah, that's right. The origins of the book uh, are in a series of conferences that were sponsored by the Acton Institute. I believe it was five conferences altogether beginning in 2012, and this book represents a selection of the papers from four of those conferences. Um, So uh, I guess you could say the theoretical genesis of it, besides the practical origins, uh, the theoretical genesis is the idea that there is, uh, beginning with the assumption of the hypothesis, 
that there is some kind of significant connection, relationship between economic liberty and religious liberty, and then exploring that. Is that the case? Uh, if it is, how is it the case? Um, and how can, can both of these sort of dimensions of freedom, economic liberty, religious freedom, how can both of those be bolstered in a world uh, in which both of them, maybe in different ways in different places, are under attack. And I think part of the idea, too, is that this is a relationship that isn't uh, as much appreciated, especially among religious leaders uh, who represent uh, one of the primary audiences of the Acton Institute. Um, so there is increasing attention being paid to religious liberty, especially because of the uh, attacks that religious liberty is under in various places in different ways, including in the United States and, and in Europe and in the Middle East, again, in different ways. Um, but uh, even though there's increasing attention to the, to the problem or to the assaults on religious liberty, there's not necessarily a full enough understanding uh, of the way that that dimension of liberty is tied to other dimensions and therefore how it may kind of rise and fall along with the other dimensions, including in this case focusing uh, especially on economic liberty. It's interesting, uh, on the podcast this year, this is a topic that has come up a few times, the issue of religious liberty and freedom of conscience. Uh, and uh, earlier this year, I talked with William Allen. He's, uh, uh, for those who maybe missed that podcast, Emeritus Professor of Political Philosophy at Michigan State University's James Madison College. And, and in that podcast, he made the point uh, that religious liberty or, or the freedom of conscience is really the fundamental ground for all of our liberties in that uh, if if we aren't able to engage our conscience uh, as we exercise, say, our freedom of speech or our freedom of association, those freedoms really lose their, their core. The, they become essentially moot. Now, it, it, going through this book, I, I ran across uh, Michael Novak's essay where he comes at it from a different angle, uh, and, and notes that without economic liberty, religious liberty can't fully flourish. It, it, or put conversely, economic freedom amplifies, he says, the flourishing of religion. So it's it's interesting to me to see from those two different perspectives how intertwined these two freedoms really are. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. Um, you know, this this relationship, economic religious liberty, it, it's so multifaceted, and there are so many different ways you can go about um, attacking the problem, addressing the problem, describing this relationship. Um, it's, it's a complicated relationship. It's not straightforward, even though we want to say there's a tendency. I think it's accurate to say there's a tendency for the two to go together. They don't always go together, always and everywhere. Uh, they don't kind of march in lockstep. Um, and so you're right that... Uh, <clears throat> that uh, both William Allen and Michael Novak are right, but they're right in different ways. And, and Novak focuses uh, on the fact that it's through economic liberty that we uh, kind of realize the basic level of prosperity necessary to practice uh, what are sometimes called the higher things, or to devote ourselves to the higher things, among, among which would be religion. And so our very um, ability, capacity to worship and to honor God in other ways through cultural achievements, architecture and art and music and so forth. All of that is dependent on some basic level of prosperity, and that prosperity is in turn dependent on economic liberty. So that's, that's kind of a unique uh, feature, a unique point that, that Novak brought to the discussion. Uh, many other folks focused more on the William Allen point, which is that... <coughs> 
Uh, religious liberty really lies at the foundation of all liberties because religious liberty, in a very basic way, reflects a, a recognition of the dignity of the human person, of the individual person, and the individual individual person as being a rights bearer. And because the individual person has a duty to God first and foremost, that duty therefore entails also a right, the the obverse side of the same coin. And so the right to religious liberty, therefore, based on uh, a, a religious duty, ultimately the right to religious liberty, therefore, uh, entails a recognition of the dignity of the human being, which in turn entails all of the other rights that we identify uh, with the individual as rights bearer. There are a lot of ways that uh, we see religious liberty being degraded in the West, and I tried to think of a few different uh, different ways that perhaps religious believers need to be more aware of how religious liberty can be degraded. And one of them, uh, right up front in the book, is Sam Gregg, uh, our uh, director of research here at Acton, uh, gives an uh, essay on religious liberty and economic freedom, and he makes a point that he's made. I, I've been at Acton for a decade, and I've heard Sam make this point over and over again about the danger of religious believers ceding their liberty to the government, and particularly uh, their economic liberty to the government in um, in accepting and, and really becoming reliant on government funding for their religious mission in a lot of ways. Sam talks a lot about, uh, in particular, Catholic charities uh, that become uh, essentially agents of the government. And uh, Sam notes that these that welfare states are, are really grounded on very different assumptions about human nature than uh, a traditional Christian understanding of human nature. And so to cede our ability to control the economic end of charity to the government is really a danger, uh, a, a fundamental danger to the religious, uh, the ability of a religious institution to carry out its own mission in accord with its own principles. Yeah, that's right, Mark. And you know, uh, I, I've heard that many, many times from Sam as well. He's been he's been saying this frequently, but he really can't say it often enough uh, because <laughs> because people need to hear it. Um, and in fact, that is you know that that's one of the purposes of this book is to is to proclaim this message again, in particular to religious leaders uh, who I think are starting to get the message because uh, this tension between that you've well described, this tension between a sort of uh, the, the culture of government and the culture of a religious charity, this tension is becoming ever more evident uh, as the years wear on. And so I think some religious leaders are getting it, uh, but we still need to spread this message. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, I think especially in the American context, this tension, which I think is always there, um, between sort of the aims or the purposes or the nature of uh, religious charities. We can, we can take the Catholic example uh, in particular, Catholic charities and other Catholic organizations run by religious orders, for example. Uh, the tension between the aims and purposes of religious charities and the aims and purposes of a government agency, that tension is always there, but especially in the American context, it wasn't as obvious for a long time because government in general government uh, was relatively friendly toward religion and so there weren't a lot of uh, significant differences in the way government agencies went about uh, went about what they did and the way that uh, religious agencies went about what they did 
and religious agencies basically felt like you know they could take government funds including whatever strings were attached to those funds but those strings wouldn't seriously or essentially compromise the mission that the religious charity uh, was trying to accomplish now again i think that that's always been problematic but it hasn't always been as problematic as it's become in recent years as government policy, again, focusing on the case of the United States, government policy has become increasingly um, conflictual with, in particular, uh, historic Christian morality and uh, even more specifically with the teachings of the Catholic Church. And we see this, of course, in some of the famous cases that have surfaced over the last few years, especially related to Obamacare, uh, the HHS mandate, and the Little Sisters of the Poor, and um, uh, various Catholic charities' uh, adoption agencies having to go out of business, out of the adoption business because of their policies of not placing children with same-sex couples, and so on and so forth. And and the numbers uh, of these uh, sort of areas of conflict seem to be increasing. And so uh, I think religious leaders are beginning to get that and to see the problems of uh, charitable, of church agencies being dependent on government, but uh, we need to make sure that that, uh, that, that message still is, is spread more clearly and more widely. Indeed. Uh, I'm talking with Dr. Kevin Schmeising, research fellow here at the Acton Institute. We're talking about the, uh, the new book just released by Acton that he uh, is responsible for editing, it's called One and Indivisible, The Relationship Between Religious and Economic Freedom. And as we're talking about uh, the degradation of, of freedom, uh, of religious freedom in particular, and the conflict between that, that seems to be developing more acutely in the West and in the United States in particular, between the church and state, one of the things that's, that's more disturbing uh, lately is, is, I guess I'll set this up by saying there has been a problem, from my perspective anyway, in the United States for quite some time, uh, with the government or a governmental organ setting itself up as the uh, final moral arbiter of a given issue, and the the obvious uh, issue here that I could that I could point to is abortion. In 1973, uh, the Supreme Court stepped in uh, to a what what at that time was a national debate on whether or not abortion should be legal, uh, and uh, sort of a uh, arbitrarily decided for the entire country that yes, we are going to legalize this practice. Uh, at all times, for whatever reason, across the nation. And so we've had a problem where uh, the the Supreme Court or other uh, governmental organ will come in and try to settle a moral issue. And, of course, it never settles the issue. It just creates an intractable uh, public conflict that drags on and on and on and can never be really resolved uh, until such time as the Supreme Court or, or whatever other agency withdraws itself from the issue and allows the public debate to come to an end through democratic means. The The disturbing thing that we're seeing now, uh, from my perspective, is that not only is the government setting itself up as the ultimate moral authority on a given issue for a thing like uh, same-sex marriage or the HHS mandate, there also seems to be a greater willingness for by, uh, on the part of government agencies and government officials to coerce people of conscience using economic means. Um, and it, it seems that, uh, for instance, uh, you know, the photographers or bakers who don't want to participate in a given uh, marriage ceremony uh, can be hauled before a government agency and have their economic freedom restricted 
uh, and curtailed uh, in order to coerce them if if they don't you know change the way they behave. So it seems again there's a there's a relationship there uh, the 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 sort of negative version of this where the government is using economic means to coerce people of conscience to do things that they really can't uh, in good conscience do. Yeah, I think uh, you know there's a there's a whole lot there. Boy, we could talk for a while about all the dimensions uh, of that problem. You know, there there's one problem which I think came in at the the early stages of your comment, which is 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 the problem of federalism and you know the the, the centralization of power that uh, as power has been extracted out of local communities and out of states and has been centralized in the federal government and in particular in the case you cite, you know, in the Supreme Court and many people have written about uh, what has sometimes been called the judicial usurpation of politics uh, or judicial activism. Um, and, and so that's one dimension of the problem. But also uh, I want to comment on, you know, this idea that sort of using economic means to bring about uh, a sort of uh, a religious or a philosophical or wo- worldview coercion. I think that's exactly right. And this is another key point that I think this book makes uh, that really needs to be more widely understood, and that is the way in which economic freedom, and in particular I'm thinking about uh, property rights, is a bulwark uh, against government oppression in the religious sphere. That, I think, is something that a lot of religious people don't quite appreciate because property rights have been so secure uh, in the United States for so long, a situation not perfect, of course, but relative uh, to the rest of the world, and in particular uh, to, uh, if you look at the, you know, the history of, of property rights, relatively very secure property rights in the United States, including the property rights of religious institutions, of churches, uh, and of other kinds of religious institutions, charities, and so forth. And so I, I don't think we've always seen the way in which that property right, which which is primarily seen as a kind of economic right, right? It's just it's a way of uh, basically a, a way of uh, securing the uh, capacity for commercial exchange and just kind of going about day-to-day business. And it, it's, it's kind of quotidian, kind of uh, uh, mundane and and uh, unexciting. But property rights are absolutely essential when it comes to something like religious liberty because. If the government has to respect property rights, there is at least a significant uh, amount of space for religious institutions and therefore for religious individuals to exercise uh, their freedom of religion, including but not limited to uh, freedom of worship. And so you see, for ex- you see how this is not the case. An example, uh, for example, in a place like China, and this is one of the essays in the book is by Cardinal Joseph Zen, uh, who was uh, the Bishop of Hong Kong and knows a lot about the situation of, uh, of, of religious, uh, uh, religious freedom in China. And he points out that China has gradually kind of opened its doors economically, opened up uh, possibilities for economic freedom, and yet at the same time has maintained a very repressive attitude toward the church. But the point to be made here is that uh, even though in some ways China has opened up economically or respected economic freedom, still China maintains, uh, the Chinese government maintains a kind of control over property rights or a kind of uh, fails to respect property rights as they have been respected in the United States. And that's what permits it to maintain control of and sometimes oppression over 
religious institutions. So they can go around knocking churches over or knocking crosses off of churches, as they have, the government has. Um, and, and what is that? Well, yes, it's a, it's a violation of, of religious freedom, but even more basically, it's a violation of property rights. And if those churches' property rights were secure, uh, that would not be possible. Um, and so we want to we want to really kind of vigorously assert this this idea that you know economic rights and some in particular like property rights uh, are very closely tied and are essential for making sure that we maintain uh, religious freedom as well. And I think it's it's important to note too, as you you mentioned a, a bit earlier, the the concept of federalism and the the separation of powers in the United States in particular. Um, and Jay Richards makes this point in his essay uh, that. He says a just and limited state has to recognize domains and institutions outside of its jurisdiction. And he, he makes the point that our founding fathers in the United States saw the church as an institution that had the capacity to limit the power of the central government. So the church has an important role to play in in that uh, in keeping the, the central government from being uh, an overweening, uh, an expansive force that simply takes over all of life. And so Christians really need to, be they Catholic, be they Protestant, uh, or and, and people of faith in general, need to understand the importance of uh, standing up and maintaining their own rights and maintaining their conscience rights in a time when it seems as though those rights are under assault. Yeah, very true. And you know, that's a, that's a common misunderstanding um, that I fear is actually maybe growing rather than decreasing, but a common misunderstanding about uh, our, our founding fathers and about uh, the the nature of religious liberty at the founding. If you look at the separation of church and state that that, that the founding fathers envisioned, and as it was enshrined in the First Amendment, it, it, it's pretty clear that um, yes, there was some concern that the church would meddle in the affairs of the state. I, I'm not saying that was completely absent, but more fundamentally, uh, people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And uh, you rightly point out that Richards covered this, covers this in his essay. Novak also touches on this in his essay. It may appear in one or two other places in the book. Uh, folks like Jefferson and Madison <coughs> primarily were concerned with the vitality of religious institutions, churches more specifically. That's why they didn't want an established church, not because they didn't want religion to play a major public, not just private, but also public role in society, but because they did want religion to play a major public role in society. That's why they wanted separation of church and state, or more precisely, religious freedom, um, so that the churches would be free to operate. And the danger was, in, a, in permitting a too close union or too close collaboration, cooperation between church and state, uh, they feared that uh, the genuine mission of the churches would be undermined. Um, so it's uh, a lot of people kind of get it just the reverse when they think that, well, the separation of church and state, the First Amendment, uh, was meant to, you know, make sure that the churches didn't get too much power, that the churches didn't play uh, too much of a public role in the United States. Uh, in fact, the re reverse was true. I have been talking with Dr. Kevin Schmiesing, uh, Acton Institute Research Fellow and editor of this uh, volume that I hold here in my hands, One and Indivisible, The Relationship Between Religious and Economic Freedom. Uh, I can't uh, recommend the book enough to my listeners of Radio Free Act, and this is a time when, when religious believers, people of conscience, need to understand uh, the times, they need to understand the nature of their rights, and they need to stand up for their rights. This is a, a valuable tool in that process. And uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. 
My pleasure, Mark. Thank you. And with that, we bring this podcast to a close. Uh, thank you once again to Dr. Kevin Schmiesing, the editor of One and Indivisible, The Relationship Between Religious and Economic Freedom. You can pick up your copy at the Acton Bookshop. Uh, head over to acton.org. The link is right at the top of the page for the bookstore. And, uh, of course, uh, thank you to you as well. Uh, we appreciate your patronage of our podcast. We hope you'll spread the link around to anyone that you think might be interested in getting some news and information with an Acton perspective, uh, also check out the Acton Power blog at blog.acton.org for a lot of good news, information, and commentary from Acton folks five days a week, Monday through Friday. Uh, that is it for this edition of Radio Free Acton. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we will see you in a future edition of Radio Free Acton. Have a good day, everybody. Mm-hmm.